From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Wednesday, May 31st. An excited and determined group of local middle schoolers took to the shores of Ken's Lake yesterday. Their goal? Be the first ones to make it across the lake in homemade cardboard boats. KZMU's Emily Arnson was there and brings us this report. At this year's second annual cardboard duct tape boat race, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of capsizing. This is eighth grader Danny Vanstone. All right, so talk to me about this vessel. Like, what was the inspiration? Uh, the Titanic. The Titanic. Okay, so you think you're going to sink or what? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. 310%. Students have spent the past couple of weeks building two-person boats out of cardboard and duct tape. So they start off with this and they do small boats and they test them in the creek. And then... Um, They kind of take the lessons they've learned and then get to apply them to their big boats. This is Jeremy Spaulding, the Grand County School District Community Coordinator. What makes a a strong boat? Duct tape. Maybe choosing light humans to to power the boat. Corianne Dalton and Kylan Kaler had a promising boat. Have you named your boat? Titanic. What? You're the second Titanic here. That's funny. Dalton braved Ken's Lake in a boat called the Titanic despite not knowing how to swim. I don't know how to swim. Wait, actually? No. Well, you have your life jacket on, so that's good. There were lifeguards present. Kaya Moore and Kendra Swenson's boat looked pretty watertight. It was one of the only boats that was completely covered in duct tape. This one, I have high hopes for your boat. It's our um, duck shark. Duck shark, is that the name of this vessel? Yeah. Uh, We were going to have a beak on the front to make it a duck, but um, we didn't have time, so we just made it a shark and put wings on the side. Unfortunately, they didn't make it very far. What happened out there? Uh, we lost shoes. Uh, this started to sink really badly. It's a shark, so we still made it pretty far. I'm out of breath. <laughs> were you feeling strong out there? We were um, paddling or kicking our lives away. All right, shark duck down. Yeah, well, I guess it's a shark, so it's supposed to be underwater. It's leaking. It's leaking. I feel it. All right, well, it lived up to the name, the Titanic. Yep. How far, how far did you make it? Right there. <laughs> it About 10 far. feet. Yeah. Do you see these girls? They're almost there. I think they're going to do it. Commitment. That's the other angle. Eighth grade kids, they get to choose. Like, there's an amount of time they get in class, but they can also go and spend a little extra. So I think these girls that made it all the way across, they spent the time. Why do you think you won? We had, like, a seat. And it didn't go in, it just stayed out. So that was one of them. And it didn't like fold in on us and we had duct tape on the bottom so it didn't like get soaked up into the cardboard and so it didn't sink as easy. Do you win anything other than honor? We get um, bowling passes. Oh, nice, that's fun. Did your boat have a name? No. Winner number one, I don't know. (laughs) You can find photos of the race in today's show notes. For KZMU, I'm Emily Ernson. Speaking of lakes, USU's Brian Steed will soon be tasked with overseeing a strategic plan for the health of Great Salt Lake. If the Utah legislature confirms his appointment as Great Salt Lake Commissioner, Steed's work could begin as soon as this summer. Sherry Quinn with our partners at Utah Public Radio reports. 
At the helm of USU's Institute for Land, Water, and Air, and member of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team, Steed is already well-equipped for the new role appointed by Governor Cox. Essentially to herd the cats that are at the state level, bringing together the various different policy uh, divisions that are dealing with the Great Salt Lake to make sure that Utah is speaking with a singular voice as well as making the policy calculations that we need to make in order to have a healthy lake. During the interview with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, Steed said the good news is the lake level is up over four feet from its historical lows, and he anticipates that to increase. On the other side, those things that are driving the decline of the Great Salt Lake, those structural factors have not changed, and my guess is that we're going to see continued challenges on the Great Salt Lake ecosystem over longer time horizons. And so while, yes, we're all very heartened by the recent year we've had, we still have great cause for concern. Challenges include mitigating toxic dust blowing off the lake and into Utah communities, and making sure that water saved through conservation from all sides, industrial, municipal, and agricultural, makes it to the lake. When asked what insights he could provide that we may not have heard of before, Steed said it's important for everyone to avoid Great Salt Lake fatigue, essentially meaning that just because the lake is on the rebound and the sky didn't fall, it's not time to give up. I think it's really incumbent on all of us to point out the successes that we are seeing and can see. I think there's a tendency in environmental reporting generally to really point out the negatives. Uh, and part of that becomes the sense of hopelessness that, well, what I do doesn't really matter. And just the opposite is true. What we do really does matter. And in this case, individually, we can make a big impact. How much you water your lawn actually does matter when it comes to how much water we're going to get in the Great Salt Lake. Overall, Steed said he is looking forward to combining the two roles with the goal of saving the lake. Ultimately, I look forward to, to working with those established connections in the academic world as well as uh, those established connections in the policy world in a more meaningful way uh, because we've kind of been working on the outside of that. This uh, gives us an opportunity to work in a more effective way on the inside. Uh, and so I think it's going to be a challenge. I'm not going to uh, lie about that, but ultimately I think that uh, I'm optimistic that we can make a difference. I'm Sherry Quinn. A federal judge has ruled in a trespassing case involving our region's checkerboard pattern of land ownership. As the Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie reports, he decided in favor of four hunters over one landowner. Corner crossing involves passing from one public parcel to another by stepping over a common point on a map shared by private property. It's been a legal gray area in the West, where land is often arranged in a checkerboard pattern. Four Missouri hunters corner-crossed a couple of years ago and were sued by a wealthy southern Wyoming landowner. He argued they trespassed in his airspace and caused more than $7 million in damages, even though the hunters never stepped foot on his property. Those claims were dismissed last week in what a major sportsman's association calls a win for public access. More than 8 million acres in the U.S. are considered corner-locked. The judge said federal law prohibits landowners from blocking access to them. Lawyers representing the hunters told the publication Wildfile that they expect an appeal to this ruling. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Will Walkie. New research shows ancient chili peppers were likely growing in southwestern states like New Mexico millions of years earlier than previously thought. Roz Brown, with our partners at the Public News Service, reports. Scientists believe birds, which, unlike people, lack heat receptors and don't wince, or worse, when eating the spicy berry-like fruits, spread their seeds across vast areas. 
Now, researchers at the University of Colorado say a previously collected fossil shows they were growing in the Americas as much as 50 million years ago, much earlier than the 15 million years ago previously thought. Study senior author Stacy Smith says finding a fossil that upends settled facts is unexpected. All of these sort of distinctive members of the family, tomatoes, eggplants, chili peppers, tobacco, all of these were around long, long before humans ever encountered them. So they were sort of hanging out waiting for us. As of March 2023, roasting green chili is now the official scent of New Mexico. Lawmakers approved, and the governor signed a bill making it the first state in the country with an official aroma. It's estimated the land of enchantment produced a whopping 53,000 tons of peppers in 2022. Researchers say the chili pepper fossils originally were collected from the Green River Formation in northwestern Colorado. The findings challenged the previous scientific understanding that nightshades originated from South America. Smith is a bit awed and happy she's able to relate how the fossil discovery has transformed her understanding of plant diversification. Oh, that's a fossil of that kind of lizard, or that's a fossil of this kind of plant. And so it just so happens we are the people that study those kinds of plants and would look at that fossil and say, hey, that's a chili pepper, and we're 100% certain that it's nothing else. The findings were recently published in New Phytologist, noting the entire nightshade family, including peppers, tomatoes, potatoes, and more, is much older and was more widespread than previously documented. I'm Roz Brown. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, May 31st. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.